Good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning as always. Glad to be able to uh, open the Word of God with you and hopefully one day when we say amen together or when we say thanks be to God together, they'll think that the thunder has roared outside or whatever. I'm thankful to be here with you today and uh, it is a blessing for us to be able to meet together. It's a blessing for us to be able to unite under uh, one banner, and that is the banner of Jesus Christ. And then everything else we do flows from there today. Um, I want to continue with us. We're going to continue in our journey through Exodus, a journey of deliverance. And today will be the second part of a journey to spiritual growth. Um, we spoke last week on what, how the Israelites responded and how they responded specifically to trials and testing. And um, specifically, we saw that they responded with spiritual immaturity. And um, we know this by the fact that testing, we, we, we mentioned that testing typically follows triumph. And we know that they responded with spiritual immaturity because they were unready and unable to handle the testing that God brought to them at Mara, the land of bitterness. And so their response was, instead of to praise God, instead of to love God, their response was to complain to God, not for what he had given them, but for what they didn't have. Testing all often follows triumph was an idea um, that we looked at last week. We touched on a few aspects of spiritual immaturity. Um, one of the, several of the aspects we touched on was they grumbled and they complained. They grumbled and they complained. They excelled in selfishness and being self-absorbed. And they did not trust in the grace of God as sufficient for them. These are all signs of being immature in general, but they're also signs of definitively being, definitively being spiritually immature. They did not trust in the grace of God, his past grace that had proven himself over and over again, even though he didn't need to. His present grace that was still currently proving himself with the glory cloud that still was hovering over them, that was in front of them, that was leading them. That in his future, the promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that he had continued to work to fulfill up until that point. The grace of God wasn't sufficient for them. So we touched on those few aspects of spiritual maturity. These were all signs that these people were on a journey of spiritual maturity, but not quite there. We left our people, we left the people of God last week resting at Elim. Remember Elim, one well for every tribe, one tree for every elder. An oasis in a spiritual or in a physical wilderness. An oasis in a physical wilderness. Today, we're going to continue to look at some aspects of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity because what we find is that after Elim, some more wilderness comes, some more hardship comes. And what we find is even when the Lord answers the prayers of the people by turning the bitter, the bitter water of Mara to sweet water, that it's still not enough. There's still some more growth. There's still some more maturity that needs to happen. So we're going to look at that today in Exodus 
16, and it's the story of God bringing manna down from heaven. I want us to look at Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to read the whole thing. Well, I'm going to read it. Hopefully you'll follow along. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. It was just called something else before they entered in, and when they entered in, it was called the wilderness of sin. Dad joke. It's a dad joke. The wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. I'm sure it had something to do with that. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, I want to point this out to you for the future, the 15th day of the second month. They're one full month out of Egypt. That's all they are, okay? Because the first part was the first month. They're one full month out of Egypt. Just kind of remember that thread as, as we go on. The second month after they had departed, uh, the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Drama. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. I'm not going to point on this Uh, much more today, but for you to understand spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity as being important, why did the Lord say he was going to rain manna and give them specific instructions? He was going to to test them. He was going to test them as to whether or not Mara had meant something to them, whether or not growth had happened in the last wilderness, from the last wilderness to this Wilderness. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Yet another test. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. What did the first part say? Where where was their grumbling directed? To Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron go out and they say, he has heard your grumbling against the Lord, against him. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, 
quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a, fa- there was a face of the wilderness, excuse me, And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It was the bread that the Lord had given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And, as Moses, and Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there shall be none. And on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. Surprise. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. Will you pray with me today? Lord God, we, are, we see, Lord spiritual immaturity and the lack of spiritual growth through the lives of the Israelites, Lord, in their struggles, in the midst of their struggles, in the midst of their testing. But Lord, we would be foolish if we didn't see ourselves. We would be foolish if we didn't see these same characteristics found in your people. 
of today, Lord. Help us, Lord, to see what spiritual immaturity looks like, to flee from it, and to grow in you so that we can become more like Jesus. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We give you this day. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want you to know I'm going to give you a little brief synopsis of that, but I'm not going to spend much time on the miracle of manna itself. What I'm going to spend more time on is the aspects of our story today that point out that spiritual maturity is not a a thing that immediately follows salvation. And we keep seeing it with the people of God in the time of the Exodus. And honestly, we keep seeing it in the people of God in the church today. The people of God here are found again, and their spiritual immaturity is showing. In our story, they have left Elim after staying there for a short time to sort of get refueled. They are now back in the wilderness and essentially wandering again. Remember, they're going to do this for 40 years. They're now in the second month And less than a month out from the Red Sea rescue, and what happens but more grumbling and complaining to uh, Moses, or at least they think they're complaining to Moses. They say to Moses, in Egypt, we relaxed by the meat pots, and we ate bread until we were full, and now you have brought us out here to kill us. Then the Lord hears their grumbling, hears the grumbling of the people, and he supplies them with their request. They said that they were full of meat and bread in Egypt, and so he gives them meat and bread in the wilderness. Now, I want you to understand that there is a connection here and a parallel that I'm not going to expound on, but I'm going to make for you because it's cool. The same word for the swarm of quail and the same word for the raining down of of, uh, manna are the same words used for the locust. It's the same words used for the plagues. And so what God has done, as a, what God has used as a sense of judgment on his enemies, what God has used as a sense of, in a sense of judgment on his enemies, he is now raining down as a blessing for his people. He brings a swarm of quail to the camp, which was considered a delicacy by the Jewish people. We know this from reading some historical, extra-biblical historical manuscripts. And he brings the dew, and when the dew evaporates, Off of the ground, it's covered in a flaky substance that is called manna. It was sort of like a wafer, sort of breadish, but not quite bread. Now, I'm not going to talk about manna much, but it it is a legit miracle, okay? And I want to, there's several reasons why I want to say that it's a legit miracle, because I think the Bible indicates that. But also, the other options are really gross, some people have said that this is a naturally occurring phenomenon where uh, ground lice, ground lice get stuck in the excretion of this plant that excretes uh, a sugary uh, substance. And when the dew rose from the ground, the ground lice uh, stuck in this ex- sugary substance and basically made uh, peanut brittle for the uh, people of, uh, of God. Um, that's disgusting. I mean, people, let's get something straight, though. It was more, a lot more common to eat bugs back then than it is now. So, um, but, so, they, so a lot of people have tried to explain this away by saying that it was some sort of ground lice that got stuck in this sugary, sweet substance. And, and number one, if that's the truth, man, God's incredible. Because God let the ground lice be around the people of Israel for 40 years... And he stopped them the night before the Sabbath. 
And we don't hear a single complaint about lice this whole time in the Bible. It's a, praise God if that's true that he's, that he's done this. But I think it's more true probably that God rained down bread from heaven just like he said he would. And that God brought this quail. And now the quail is only mentioned one other time. The quail was not a, a common thing. The quail was this instance. It was a miracle. And it was one other time uh, for the people of Israel in their, in their wandering. But the manna was something that was going to stay. And then he instructed them how to collect the manna. He said, look, go out, pick it up just for that day. Pick it up for that day. It's funny, do you remember anything that connects to that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You think Jesus was referring to the wilderness? You think Jesus was referring to the manna when he said, give us this day our daily bread? They were supposed to collect for the day for who was in their tent. And then they were, on the night before the Sabbath, they were to collect for two days for this time of rest. They were not to collect on the Sabbath. So the Lord gives them this instruction, and of course we see that some people can't follow the rules, even if they're laid right out in front of them. Last week we discussed the response to God from the people of God And we lined out how it proved some spiritually immature aspects of their life. And I think we should continue on that theme. Because what we witness is not too uncommon with how we act. And what we witness tells us much about the need for growth amongst God's people. And then it tells us specifically things that we can avoid or we can do to follow Christ and grow in maturity. Now what I'm going to do is, instead of focusing on the miracle of the story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some points and some aspects of spiritual maturity and then some um, spiritual immaturity and then some practical sort of things that we can do to follow God in maturity. And I'm calling these, this is a very original title, The Marks of Spiritual Immaturity of the People of God as Seen in Exodus 16. It's very original. I know that you expected me to alliterate something special for you. But hey, sometimes you just put it straightforward, and it is the marks of spiritual maturity as seen by the people of God, or as seen of the people of God in Exodus 16. I'm just going to go, and we're just going to talk about those. That's all we're going to do. So first, one mark of spiritual maturity they grumbled so quickly after receiving the good, God's goodness. They grumbled so quickly after receiving God's goodness. Now, I understand that I hit on this last week, but we really didn't talk about it much. We just pointed, out, we pointed it out as a matter of fact, and um, we didn't really work through it. But we need to talk about it because grumbling is a very common aspect of most people's lives. It's a very common aspect of most people's lives. It can easily creep into the hearts and minds and be on the lips of the people of God before we know it. Grumbling is something that I believe everyone does to some degree. Some people are masters in grumbling, but everyone does it to some degree. Now, if grumbling is something everyone does, then then why is it so bad? After all, aren't we just 
venting or explaining the situation or just telling people, letting people know what's going on in our lives. Grumbling isn't that bad, right? And if it is a problem, it can't be that big. We're just, look, this is my friend. I'm just letting my friend know what's going on. I'm not grumbling. I'm not, I'm not discontent. Why is grumbling such a big problem that I would mention it two weeks in a row? Um, I think it's worth addressing today. The first reason that grumbling is such a big problem is because it overlooks God's holiness by allowing respectable sins. It overlooks God's holiness by allowing respectable sins. The reason things like grumbling or gossiping or lying must be mentioned and must be spoken against is because we have allowed ourselves to excuse them for too long as respectable sins. We look at things like grumbling and lying and gossip and those things and we say, well, at least we aren't murderers. At least we aren't thieves. At least we aren't drug addicts. We look at small, I've got air quotes if you're not seeing this, small sins like grumbling, and we think it's so small in the scheme of things. I want to point out a little side sermon here. Gossip, lying, and grumbling are all mentioned secondarily, lying primarily, but secondarily in Proverbs 6 as the six things the Lord hates and seven which are an abomination. But we grumble, and because it's a respectable sin, because you can grumble and still be a part of a a social organization, you can grumble and not annoy your friends too much, you can grumble and still openly serve and be a part of the American church, we look at grumbling and we're like, well, this is a respectable sin. This is the mentality of the American church, by the way, to hide what we consider an unrespectable sin and to foster or harbor even what we consider respectable sin. It's why in the 50s families sent pregnant daughters away instead of living with that sin, instead of embracing them. It's why in the 50s they sent them away to live somewhere else. Because as long as you could hide the unrespectable sin... You were okay. It's why families hide their past instead of being open about their sin and the goodness of God. How many times have you ever been, oh, I hit it, almost got it. How many times have you been, that was a fly, by the way, for anybody listening, because that's going to sound weird just out of context. Um, How many times have you been in a family reunion? This has happened to me, a family event or a family reunion, and something happens from the past, and it comes up, and you, or you bring it up, or something, and you realize no one knew about that. And you're like, oh, so um, this is news to you then. It's happened to us. I mean, we've, we've ended some family events, extended family events, in tears. Because some families are very good at hiding, hiding what they consider unrespectable, what they consider, you know, those sins that you can't mention. It is, it is a blight on the church that we allow respectable sins and we hide those unrespectable things. I've, I've taken contracting jobs before where I was responsible for repairing something that we couldn't, there was a mistake, there was a problem and we couldn't see it because on the outside it looked beautiful, or not beautiful, but it looked good. It was passable. And then you start ripping things apart and you start taking layers apart and you're like, oh, here's the problem you discover that underneath the surface there is a greater problem. 
The reason we discuss things like grumbling is because it is important for us to not use cultural norms to, deci- to al- allow cultural norms to decide what's acceptable and not acceptable when it comes to the holiness of God. It's a cultural norm to lie and cheat and connive your way to the top. But it's not a godly norm. It's not a holiness norm. It is a cultural norm to grumble when your job is not going well, when your marriage is not going well, when friends stink. But it is not a godly norm. It is not seeking holiness when we do that. The reason that we focus on grumbling, and we focus on grumbling for two weeks, is because when we don't focus on these respectable sins, what we do is we say, culture dictates is it okay, God's holiness dictates it as not okay, I'll choose the culture this time. It overlooks God's holiness by allowing respectable sins. Here's another one that is vastly important, friends. The reason we focus on grumbling is because grumbling blames God and others for our own spiritual immaturity. Grumbling blames God and others for our own spiritual maturity. The people of God were grumbling because they did not trust God. They lacked the faith to trust in his provision. They lacked the faith to trust that the life they were living now was the life that God had given them and that it was for their good. They lacked the faith to believe (coughs) excuse me, that he would bring them through. The problem wasn't that God had removed himself or let them down, but they didn't trust God the work that God was doing and had done and was going to do. And they looked for someone to blame. You need to hear this, friends. Grumbling to God or about God or about someone else or to someone else is an egregious sin because it blames that person for our own lack of faith. Do you understand? We, grumbling is an egregious sin because when we say so-and-so is responsible, what we're doing is we're either putting the blame on God or that person because we don't trust God in our present situation. That is vastly important. That is vastly important. We think grumbling is a respectable sin and it's okay because it's just expressing what's on our heart. But what it's actually saying is, God, it's your fault that my job's not working. God, it's your fault that my marriage is falling apart. God, it's your fault that my friends don't treat me like they should, that they don't love me like I think they should. We blame God. We blame our friends. We blame others. We blame our spouse. And what we're saying is, Lord, I don't trust you. Friends, when you grumble and complain about your job, you're saying, it's my manager's fault or God's fault who put me here. When you grumble about your spouse, you're saying, it's my, my spouse's fault. It's his fault. It's her fault that I'm in this situation. When you grumble about your kids or your church or your friends, when you grumble, you are blaming others directly for your problems and God indirectly because God is the one that sovereignly placed you in that time, in that place, in that situation. 
what we need to know is this, that your grumbling about the path that God has you on is a direct result of, your, of our lack of faith and spiritual maturity and is not nearly affected as much as we think by our boss or by our spouse or by our children or by the lack of provision that we have, but, but, but more so by the lack of trust that we have in God. Grumbling about anything is a sign that you are spiritually mature and that you have not grown enough in trusting the Lord. Now here is a side sermon that's very important. I want to make this very clear. Grumbling is not a humble cry for help. Grumbling is not groaning to God. It is not lament. It is not fear. It is not disappointment. It is not hurt or other similar emotions. Those things are fully acceptable in what we can do to God. The the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Grumbling is not those things. Grumbling is not genuine hurt. It's not genuine sorrow. It's not genuine pain. Grumbling is this, and this is very important to make this distinction. Grumbling is being compliant while complaining. Grumbling is being compliant while complaining. It is closed fist, God, why are you doing this? Not, why are you doing this? Show me what you're doing. They grumbled so quickly after receiving the goodness of God. Friends, it's important that we use God's holiness as our standard of measurement for what is acceptable and not what we deem acceptable at the time or what the culture deems acceptable at the time or not what feels good, or is cathartic. They did not trust in the, or they did not look at the holiness of God as their measure. This is, I'm telling you, I've been excited about this. This sermon's good. Listen, they distorted the past. They distorted the past. This is important. This is why we, this is how we know we're spiritually mature. They distorted the past. Look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. We were just chilling by the meat. That's all we did in Egypt was just chill by the meat pots all day. And we ate bread to the full. It was a party basically. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. You want to murder us, Moses. The people of God often, they quite often suffered from revisionist history. You would have thought that the people of God were staying in a five-star hotel and that Pharaoh was the concierge. Oh, do you remember how good we had it in Egypt? We would sit around the meat pots and all we would do is talk all day about slaving away. We had enough bread that we were full, just enough so Pharaoh could drain us the next day. Friends, you need to know this. Grumbling and spiritual immaturity always distort the past. It distorts the past. Boy, that Pharaoh was so nice. He filled us up. And Moses, you came out here. You brought us out here to kill us. You know what? Things were better back then. When life was good. You know, before Christ, I didn't have these problems. My friends loved me and respected me, and they didn't call me a bigot or mischaracterize me in other ways. Back before kids, man, life was good. I was free. You remember those days? Man, that was awesome. The husband 
remembers all the girls he could have had. The wife remembers all the problems she could have solved on her own without the husband's help. Oh man, was God, was life so good and God went and stuck me in this situation that I am now. It reminds me of a song I sing to Anna to be sweet and kind of funny. And it's, I'd be looking for a woman like you. And it's a country song, so don't, I don't really love country music, so don't get on to me. But for some reason, I, cre- I, uh, I connect, relate. That's the word I was looking for, not create. I relate country music to all my love stuff. So, um, But it's uh, last night out of the blue, drifting off to the evening news. He said, she said, honey, what would you do if you'd never met me? I laughed said, I don't know, but I would take a couple guesses, though. And I tried to dig real deep and said, darling, honestly, it says darling in here, but I know it's darling. Yeah, darling, uh, darling, honestly, I do a lot more offshore offshore fishing. I'd probably eat more drive-through chicken. I'd take a few strokes off my golf game if I had never known your name. I'd probably still drive in that old green Nova, and I probably would have never heard of yoga. I'd be a better football fan, but if it, and then, and he goes, there's a little chorus, and then he says, he says something else. He says, um, hold on, where am I? He said, I'd be shooting pool in my bachelor pad, playing bass in my cover band, restocking up cold Bud Light, playing poker every Tuesday night. I'd have a dirt bike in the shed and not one throw pillow on the bed. I'd keep my cash in a coffee can. And then he, and then he gets to the punchline because the first part is revisionist history. He said, Alone and out there on the loose, I'd be looking for a woman like you. And he gets to the punchline. He's revisionist history, and he says, you know I get sick deep sea fishing, and you make the best fried chicken. I've got a hopeless golf game. I love the sound of your name. I might miss that old green Nova, but I love watching you do yoga. I take a gold band on my hand over being a single man, because honestly, I don't know what I'd do if I never met a woman like you. One sure sign of spiritual maturity is to, in difficult times, despise the life has given you now and to distort the past to make it look like it was so much better than what you're living in. It's hard being an employee. It's, it's hard being a boss. But wishing I was back in college without responsibility, truly cher- instead of truly cherishing the financial blessings God has given me, is distorting the past. It's extremely difficult to be a good husband, but Is wishing for a single life because those were the good old days and I had money and freedom, not a distortion of the past? All while ignoring the present blessings that God has given us? Now, don't take this the wrong way, and some of you still will, even after I said that, but it's in the Geneva Convention, so I can say that. I'm convinced that I would would be in much better financial shape, I would have much less trouble, and I'd be bothered a lot less if I was single. I would live like a hermit in Alaska or something like that. I would, But you can take all of my money and you can take all of my spare time and you can rip all of those things away just for one day to be called the husband of Anna Holbrook. Kids are annoying. And I remember a time before kids and I was cool and free. Remember, past distortion. But I wouldn't want to have a year of my past back if it meant losing one day with my family. In our immaturity, we distort the past and make everything seem so great as compared to everything we're going through in our present. Immaturity is a distortion of the past and an unwillingness to embrace what God has in our present and for our future. 
They grumbled. They distorted the past. This is important. Still good, guys. Pay attention. They exaggerated the present. For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill us. This whole assembly with hunger. You know what they said? They said what every parent has heard at least a thousand times. I'm starving. I'm starving. I used to say that. My parents would annoy me so bad. They'd be like, no, the Ethiopians are starving or something like that. You know, the kids in out, my dad's thing was always outer Mongolia. The kids in outer Mongolia, they're starving. Right, exactly. So this is on a road trip. How many times have you heard that? I'm starving. We need to examine this. We need to examine this to see if they're exaggerating the present. Was it true? Were they starving? Exodus 12, 37 gives us a key to that. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you real quick, real quickly. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Listen, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Listen, a month ago... They went out with very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and now they're starving. It's only been a month. If they'd lost all their livestock in that time, the problem is not God. The problem is they're not good shepherds. So they had milk. They likely had cheese. I don't know how long it takes to make cheese, but yeah, so maybe in a month they could have made cheese. And they likely had some meat. They didn't have their full. They weren't sitting around the meat pots of Egypt in such a great life. But they also weren't starving. One sign of spiritual immaturity is to exaggerate your present situation to make your story more believable or relatable. Listen, friends, this hits almost everybody. We live in a society of exaggerators. There's a video going around now, and we're going to play it today. I want you to see it. It's been going around. Hopefully it'll work because I don't think we've done this in a very long time. See if you can turn that. Which one is that? Number nine. <laughs> At some point he'll settle down and he'll do like this and then he'll go. Oh. But you won't see it. That, that was a short version? Okay. So this is the exaggeration of the present. All right. So, so here's what's happening. The people of God approach Moses and they say, I'm starving. And their sheep and goats are like walking right behind them. Lord, we're starving. You're killing us. Friends, I want to tell you, maturity is letting truth speak for itself and not exaggerating your current situation to build up a case for your story. We do, we do this so much, though. We make huge deals out of small things or we pile on a bunch of small problems to make our point. But you don't understand. Look at this or look at this or look at this. And both of, both of these are signs of immaturity that show us we don't trust in God and we just want to pout. These guys had been given the plunder of the Egyptians. 
Also, they were wearing gold and silver chains around their neck as they were saying, Lord, where is the provision? They look like Mr. T, and they're, and they're worried that the Lord was out to kill them. It's like getting a BMW and complaining that you didn't get a Range Rover. Think about how we do this. If the internet doesn't load quickly, when we get no signal on our phone, when our AC goes out, for me this past year and probably since we lived at our house, it's been pool equipment not working. When our food takes too long, when we are put out in any way, we exaggerate in order to make a story. This is social media, by the way. Like all of social media is this. We exaggerate to make ourselves, our story, look better. Again, exaggeration is a respectable sin, so we don't often talk about it. What is my first, if you've been through pre-marriage counseling with me or marriage counseling, what is my first rule of fighting? Well, that's too, that too. Don't use absolutes. I have many rules. They're all number one. They're all number one. One A, excuse me, I should have said one C, sorry. Don't use absolutes. In, 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 in marriage confrontations, in marriage confrontations, excuse me, left that part. I, I, was, so, I was so distracted by all the good things they brought that were wrong that uh, don't use absolutes in marriage confrontation. You always do this, or you never do this, or you're literally the word. When we do this, Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. Are you going to take care of us? We are starving. We overlook exaggeration because it's a respectable sin. But exaggeration is a, a serious sin because we, we deceive others into victimization. Exaggeration is a serious sin because we demean others in order to uplift ourselves and therefore breaking the second commandment of God. When we exaggerate, especially about others, we demean others, we belittle others to uplift our story, to uplift ourselves. And the second commandment of God is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. We can't just tell the truth. We have to misrepresent the truth. We have to exaggerate to get our way, to get people on our side, because that's what it's all about in this world. The more people you have rallying behind you, the better off you are, evidently. So another sign of immaturity is they exaggerated the present. And the last one we're going to talk about today is they disobeyed God sign of immaturity that we know is they disobeyed God. They just flat out disobeyed God. He said, gather a certain amount, an omer, for those in their tent. That's about two liters of manna. Just get some perspective. They gathered more. He said to not leave any over, but gather for the day and get rid of it. They left it over and it spoiled and there were worms. He said to gather for the Sabbath, but don't gather on the Sabbath. And what happened? Some still went out together on the Sabbath. Friends, spiritual immaturity is putting personal needs and wants over obedience to God and what he commands. I think this shows us three things about the spiritual immature person 
and what they do and what we can do to sort of avoid those things. The reason they didn't obey God is because they prioritized excess over contentment. They prioritized excess over contentment. The Lord said, gather a certain amount and some gathered more. But more than that, in their exaggeration, they say, Moses, this is what we need. Though their needs were already met. Their exaggeration caused them to turn needs, our wants, into needs. Moses, this is what they, we need. No, anything above what you need is an excess, and that's a want. And so they prioritized excess over contentment. The Lord provided what they needed, and they wanted their wants fulfilled. This is a constant provision, this is a constant theme of the Lord's provision, and sooner or later we will see that they get sick of the manna. The manna is what they need, and they get sick of it. It's not what they want anymore. Friends, I don't know an easy way to tell you how to not be a person who prioritizes excess over contentment, except to say this. Pursue contentment. Judge every new purchase. Judge every sale. Have the mentality that just because I should, could, just because I can, doesn't mean I should. Pursue contentment over excess. Another problem that led to their disobedience is they prioritized personal fulfill, fulfillment over obedience. Not only were they not content with God's present fulfillment, but he asked them to collect for the day and they did not obey. They prioritized being filled permanently or what they thought was permanently over being filled for the day, which is what God commanded. The Bible said they collected more and they tried to save some, but it was rotted by the morning. We want God ha- we want typically what God has for us, especially if it's good. How often do we reject what God commands in order to fill our personal tanks? In order to make us us feel better about ourselves or our present situation? And here's the ultimate problem of all of this. And this is where spiritual maturity's root is found. They loved the gift more than the giver. They loved the gift more than the giver. And that's that's why Jeremy read John 6 today. I want to go back there, and you don't have to turn there. If, if Melissa, if you can bring it back up. I'm going to read, start in verse 32. If it's not easy to bring it back up, that's fine. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Friends, I want to tell you, at the root of spiritual immaturity, at the root of discontentment, at the root of always wanting and never receiving, at the root of unhappy marriages, unhappy relationships, unhappy jobs, is that our focus 
is continually on the gift instead of the giver. It's not easy, and it comes with maturity to be able to focus on God, to be able to focus on the goodness of God and what he's done for us. It's not easy. It comes over time. But I will tell you, you will never get there. Now listen, I've complained about my job just as much as any of you have. You will never get there if you always focus on what you don't have or what you do have as far as the gifts are concerned. You will never get there by comparing your relationships with other people. You will never get there by, by comparing your church to another church. You will never get there by comparing what you have to what others have or what you don't have to what others have. Friends, one sure sign of spiritual maturity is that we transform in a way, we grow in a way where our mind is focused on the giver of every good gift. And the truth is, grumbling and all of those things, they are results of want. And the Bible says, he who eats of me will never want, will never hunger, will never thirst. I'm not saying that grumbling will ever be something that's completely removed from our life. Paul says, I'm continuing to press on towards that mark of perfection. I'm not there, and he knew he wasn't going to get there until eternity, but he kept pressing on towards it. But I will tell you, we will never get there by focusing on the temporal things of this world. We only get there by focusing on Christ. And when we sup on Christ, when we relish in the body that was broken for us, and we relish in the blood that was poured out, that washes, that cleanses, that purifies mankind, we will not want, we will not hunger, we will not thirst. Pray with me. God, you are good. Help us to always focus on you. Help the center of our relationships, help the center of our marriages, our friendships, help the center of our life to be about you. Would you make us a grateful people, Lord? Would you make us a people who are grateful, who are thankful? Would you just run thankfulness in our lives? Lord, would just ruin us with contentment so that someone can't even come across us and make us upset. Someone can't even come across us and make us mad because we're so content in you. God, we love you so much. Lord, we give you this day. We praise you and we thank you for all the blessings. But we thank you more for the, gi- the giver of all the blessings. It's in his name we pray. Amen.